Welcome to Living Waters Podcast. Whether you're a lifelong believer, someone seeking spiritual nourishment, or simply curious about the teachings of Christ, this podcast is for you. Thank you for listening and being part of our family. Luke chapter 18. Let's read from verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give, my, give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his own breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he, was a very wealth, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you. Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. 
He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we once again can meet together as your church. We are so grateful that that we get to come together weekly and worship you and praise you and, and read your word and learn from it and be shaped and instructed. And I pray, Lord, that as we are going through this, this incredible book and as we're nearing the end, that it will be so solidified in our lives that we too may be sure of everything we've heard. But I pray, Lord, that this would not just be a series we did once in a church but that the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ will shape not just how we live, but who we are. Thank you, Jesus, for your incredible salvation. And amen. There's an incredible couple of chapters still waiting for us. And I want to warn you, I'm not going to be here for all of them. <laughs> we have been running out of time and... Uh, but I'll make sure that this, this series is finished, okay? I will see to it. If that's the last thing I do for this church, um, I'll make sure that it is finished. Today we're in chapter 18, and, and we're going to split it into three parts. So three parts is coming, and the first part is from verses 1 to 14, and that's the first two parables we find on prayer. Now, the big idea of these two parables is that we should pray with confidence that God will respond. But our confidence should be in God's mercy and not in our own merits. Now, over the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been using quite a lot of um, parables in, in his journey up to Jerusalem. So we're seeing from chapter 14 to 16, it's basically just that. And we've got these two and one more in the next chapter for next week. But that will pretty much sum up. It will close off all the parables that Jesus is telling. But it's really about one big theme, and that is discipleship. What does discipleship look like? And here specifically today, in, in the ones we're reading today, is, is this connection between the previous one, because there's a, is a hint of eternal life, but it also connects to what Jesus is going into next, and he's, he's going to talk about this upside-down kingdom that we actually live in. And I know you've heard that word or, or phrase a million times. We're going to talk about it in a bit. But these are focused specifically more on prayer. And the two people that's depicted in the second one is an interesting thing because it's one person that would have been considered by society as the elite. This is, this is the best. And not just society, by the way, but also by religious institutions. If I might, I might lend a word from the more charismatic um, circles, they would have been considered the generals of the faith. You guys heard that before? I'm not sure what it means. But um, 
but they would have been considered the, the main honchos, you know. So, so when they walked into a room, there would have been an automatic respect, not just in terms of their wealth and, and their, you know, the way they carried themselves, but because of the position they had. And on the other hand, we've got the tax collector, which was outcast. It was the hinds of the society, you know. It was, uh, it was those who had, had no place being in the temple because they, they turned their back on their own people. They stole, or so everyone thought they stole the whole time. But at the end of the day, we get this juxtaposition between what is considered acceptable and not. But we're going to get there in just a moment. We're first going to talk about this persistent woman, the first one. And this first parable connects very well to what we just spoke about in chapter 17. If you missed it, that's last week. It is available on Spotify if you want to listen to it. But, but where there's a connection to the eternal. And here, once again, Jesus connecting it back, actually talking about prayer, but connecting it to the eternal, especially with that last statement, when the Son of Man comes. And I think this is very strategic, what Luke is doing, because Luke is now transitioning us from just the teachings or from the great measure of teachings that we received, actually, to what is about to happen in a few chapters. And for them, they're just a few weeks out, by the way, to Jesus being crucified. This is, this is what's happening now. This is a tough time. And Luke is kind of just preparing them, preparing. I mean, next week we're doing, you know, the triumphant entry. This is where we are, by the way. Get ready for it. So Luke is preparing them. And there's this, this real focus on the eternal. And for me, first, I had to pause there and just ask, how often do we as Christians, as the church, focus on the eternal as we should? Or do we completely just live in the temporary. Now, now this is a, a question that, that unfortunately will influence us more than we realize. It will influence us more than we realize. Now, number one, obviously, it'll have a major influence on how we interact with people. Because those who are focused on the temporary only wants the temporary. Those who are focused on the eternal wants the eternal. And why there's such a big difference is that if you're focused on the eternal, you want eternity for everyone, not just for yourself. And that's, oh, I'm going deep real quickly. We've spoken about this so much, but, but the reality is that we as Christians, if, if we realize, last week we spoke about this, if we realize what's, what's waiting for those who don't know Jesus, and our focus is eternity, then we would want to do something about it. We would. Now, now listen, I'm not saying we threaten people, we point fingers and tell people they're going to hell. That's, that's never worked before. Okay? You're not going to make it work either. Let me, let me promise you that. But the first warning that, that I heard when I read this is because so often we see that there's going to be people amongst us that's going to miss the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus himself said, it is those among you that's casting out demons and healing the sick that's going to miss the kingdom of God. See, we want to run out and we want to blame all the sinners forgetting that we are sinners ourselves. We're getting back to that with the tax collector and the Pharisee in just a moment. We allow each other to to, you know, sin because we're the church, you know, what we do is righteous and justified. The other problem with the temporary versus eternal perspective is obviously you're going you're gonna to make yourself a lot of treasures on, on earth because you think it's all you have. 
And what a poverty that is to think all you own is what you can touch. What a poverty that truly is. I want to go back to this persistent woman. Quite an important parable, and it's framed. And I love how Luke does this. He doesn't allow us to really question what it's about, if you notice. Verse 1, he starts, and he says, Then Jesus told the disciples a parable to show them. Okay, so this is the purpose of the parable, that they should always pray and not give up. So, so this is amazing. He frames it. He tells us exactly this is what it's about. Or I don't get too creative with this one. This one is framed. A few parables, Jesus explains himself, and some are, are framed like this, so we don't know. And then in verse 8, he ends with this eternal perspective once again. We, again, when he asks this incredibly difficult question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the kind of faith he was just talking about on earth? Will he find this on earth? Which is just an incredible question. Now, now, I have a lot to say here, but I just want to make one thing very clear. The judge is not God. Okay? Don't read God into the unjust judge. God is not an unjust judge. All right? This is not about God and, and someone asking. This is about the persistence of a person. This is what's exemplified here. And, and I have to make that. And I, I think it's one of the most delicious ironies in the Bible. The unjust judge. The very person who should be just in his judging is described as an unjust judge who has neither fear for God or any care for man. An interesting story there. But we get back to this persistent woman, this persistent faith. And, and this is, by the way, also, I, I need to say, this is not claiming that nagging God gets you what you want. All right. This is, this is not claiming that. And I know this seems like, like there's a, a close connection, but, but I want to go against that because what the story is about is about someone who, is, who has incredible, persistent faith. Even though she was an outcast, she was a widow, so she had no one, the Bible's full widows, had no one to look out for them, but, but she clearly could stand on her two feet, big up to this woman, because she was not you know, going to lay down. She, was going, she went to the judge herself and said, hey, this is what I want. There's a confidence there, which is just amazing. But the story is about... Persistent faith and that God takes notice of persistent prayers and that he can be trusted to answer them even if not immediately. Even if not immediately. Now, I add this because this last statement, when the Son of Man returns, is very important because ultimately, when Jesus comes again, there are still going to be unanswered prayers. Whether they're a day old, a week old, a hundred thousand years old, is irrelevant, there's going to be unanswered prayers in our perspective. Yet, when he comes again, this is, this is the moment when, man, everything changes. This is the moment where, where we'll find our, our deliverance, our, our saving, our, our vindication for everything we've been searching. This is the moment that we can look forward to. And this is a big challenge for us because ultimately, do we have the kind of faith that will keep on praying even if we don't see this in our lifetimes like the heroes of faith did in Hebrews? Do we have the kind of faith that will keep on praying and trusting God even if we have to pray till Jesus comes back? Literally, this is not a figurative thing. Are we those kind of people? And when Jesus comes back, he'll find us praying, persistently praying. Now, obviously, that's a big question because, man, we need to differentiate here what true faith is. Because we need to have faith not in the deliverance, not in the answer to prayer. We need to have faith in God. 
We need to trust God enough that, that we believe that He's good. Even when we're hurting, He remains good. Even if you don't get what you want, He remains good. Even if your prayers aren't answered, He remains good. Your subjective opinion about life does not change the nature of God. It just doesn't. And I know that's a harsh statement to make, but at the end of the day, we sometimes make the mistake of of thinking ourselves like this self-righteous Pharisee that's coming, that by our own merits, we're kind of level with God. And that's a big mistake to make, because what we have is a creator and creation. You are not the creator, you are the creation. And this is an important perspective to keep because our faith needs to be not in get what we want or, or even the idea that what I'm praying for is the best thing for me because let me tell you, I've had some silly prayers in my life. I've, I've asked God for some silly things persistently. Guess what? I didn't get what I asked for because it's not what I needed. What I needed was faith. What I needed was character. I didn't need that Ferrari at the time. Or sorry, I must end off consistent, that Toyota Hilux. I've for years been speaking about the Toyota Hilux. Let's, let's, let's focus on it. But see that, when people pray for something, and even sometimes for things they desperately need, things like healing, if you see them walking away from God because their prayers aren't answered, it means their faith was in the prayer or, or what they were asking for and not in God. That's the tough thing here. See, we, we need to be a people who put our faith in God, not in outcomes. Not in outcomes. I can't imagine Peter was praying to be crucified upside down according to church tradition. can't imagine that's what he was excited about while Jesus was talking about persistent prayer. Oh, yes, can I just be crucified upside down, Jesus? That would be great. Can I be boiled in a pot of oil? Can I be, you know put aside on an island. This is, this is not the prayers. But the disciples didn't allow circumstances to dictate their faith. And, and this is the thing about circumstances. We might think that it's easy to have faith when, when things are going well. No, no, listen, let me, let me just make things very clear. When things are going well is when people walk away from Jesus very quickly. People that will be in church every week on their knees praying for a job will stop coming when they have money because they've got money to do other things. That's the reality of it. And then they make silly promises. If you give me a job, I'll stop drinking. But as soon as that money comes in, my mouth, partake it tight. See, the other side is also true, though. Sometimes things are going really bad, and people start off by praying fervently. And then when they don't get their prayers answered, whether it's a week, a month, a year, if they don't get their prayers answered, they also walk away from God. And this is the thing where, where why I'm saying this is there's a massive warning here is that circumstances, whether good or bad, does not mean your faith will stay in God. Faith in God will keep your faith in God. We as Christians must not look at circumstances as the outcome or the ultimate thing we want to head towards. We must look as God as our focus. This is what Jesus said so many times. He said that in me you will have peace. This world you will have promise. Oh, troubles. What a promise is that is. That is just fun. In this world you will have trouble. Yay. 
but I have overcome the world. In me, he starts, in me you will have peace. And that is where our faith brings us, is to peace. So in this challenge of this persistent woman, let me just say, prayer, like, like all aspects of discipleship, is a partnership involving our will and action. It is not a one-sided, unilateral thing that God just does. Discipleship involves our will and action because God is not going to override our freedom or responsibility. Or responsibility. Anyway, in this last statement, Jesus brings this, to, this, this parable to a close and, and ultimately he brings in something that should be the focus of every Christian and that is in eternity, the things we're struggling with now will be an end. I mean, in the book of Revelation, John makes it very clear that it is only when Jesus comes back that there will be no more tears and mourning. That's what we look forward to. And Jesus says here, when the Son of Man comes, in the end, will he find the kind of people that clings to a persistent faith in God? Because ultimately, I believe that's really what he is looking for. Now, we serve an incredible God. I need to say this as well. And I've had so many prayers answered, not because, let me just make this very clear, not because my prayers are holier than yours, all right? There's no such thing. There's no, my merits on earth does not make prayer powerful. God's person makes prayer powerful. Your prayers are just as powerful as mine. Amen. I'm going to say it again. Your prayers are just as powerful as mine. It is just as powerful. Don't listen to all those pastors who try to fool the church into thinking that they're some kind of authority in prayer and when they pray, you know, mountains will move. No, 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 no. Jesus said, faith moves mountain, not pastors or prophets or apostles or whatever. You turning to your friend, your husband, your wife, your kids and say, let's pray together is the same kind of faith that I could have to pray for you. This is important. This is important because I believe we need to be liberated from this idea that just because someone has a microphone, it means they're closer to heaven than what you are. Not a chance. Not a chance. Your prayers are powerful and we serve a God who still answers prayer. He does it when He wants to, how He wants to, if He wants to. That's what in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that's very clear. The Holy Spirit, according to His own purpose. He's God. He can do what He wants. Amen? Amen. But I believe my God still performs miracles because I have experienced them in my own life. And even when He doesn't, I pray that we might have the kind of persistent faith that we see in this woman. Because ultimately, we have a promise of salvation in the end. I want to move on to the Pharisee and the tax collector, because I'm going to run out of time. We get the second parable, sorry, and you can see that it's not necessarily a parable about, about how to pray, right? This is pretty clear. This is not a, you know, if you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, you know, glory to your name. Now, what we see here is, is this juxtaposition between personal righteousness, someone who believes they are righteous, and someone who recognizes their position in God. 
Now, why this is an important parable is because in this moment, Jesus is actually shifting his focus from, you know, the specific persistent prayer, and he's using a parable on prayer, and then it goes straight into accepting kids. All right, praise Jesus for that. But this is an interesting one because context of prayer, but actually not about prayer. And this is important because we might ask, how does this apply to us? And, and I will ask you, do you think that, that a merit-based faith is still alive and well in the church today? I do. I see some people, you know, that feel they are more holy. I even know of people that you're not allowed to pray for them because their prayers are holier than yours. Sorry, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Let me make that very clear. Some of the most powerful prayers I've heard in my mouth, ach, in my mouth, in my life, was prayers when my, when my kids said, Daddy, remember, we must play, pray for Auntie Bronwyn's dad. Why? Because there's a faith there. There's a faith there. Do not be like the Pharisee who goes and says, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. You know? <laughs> I'm so glad I'm holier than this guy. You know? Not a chance. When we approach God, we do it like the tax collector who went up and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He didn't even have the courage to raise his head towards heaven. He looked down, he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me. That is the posture of a true worshiper. As someone who thinks we're not justified by our own merits, what we did or what we don't do. I mean, there's Pharisees going on and he's saying, I'm, I'm so good, I'm so much better. But ultimately, let me to make this very clear for us. Number one, be careful of spiritual pride. Be careful of spiritual pride. Number two, don't hide your sin so that man will consider you righteous. Rather, be honest about your sin before, sin before men so that God will consider you righteous. What men think of you is irrelevant. They might judge you for a moment, but I would rather have moments of judgment before men than eternity of judgment from God. Humble ourselves before Him. Let's move on. I want to get to the second one because we're going to run out of time. Luke 18, the second section. And this is the, the revolutionary values of the kingdom. And the big idea, obviously, in the kingdom of God, accepted human values of status and importance of importance, rather, is turned upside down. Now, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, and, and on his encountering of people, he's illustrating how the kingdom is kind of except those who human rejects, rejected by humans. That was a confusing sentence. Let's try again. The kingdom accepts those rejected by humans, but reject those who humans think should be accepted. This is a, a difficult place for the kingdom to be because you and I must, first and foremost, we must recognize the fact that we have a worldview, okay? Your worldview hopefully is inspired by the Bible, but ultimately it's formed by every experience you've ever had in your entire life, by every song you've listened to, by every movie you've watched. It has shaped your worldview. Everything we think and do is shaped by our experiences in this life. And let me tell you something, the world is not trying to make you love Jesus or to accustom you to the kingdom of God. It's not. The world is trying to get you away from it. Now I must be very careful here because there's a lot of things I want to say right now that's popping into my mind, but I'm not going to because I have six weeks left and I want to be here for all six of them. All right, I don't want an old-fashioned stoning off the church because I said some things. 
But in this world, we, one of the things that's happening more and more, and yes, I'm going to say this one, it's calculated, I think, is that men are put down because we're worthless. And we see that again and again and again come up in this world. Men are useless. Men are trash. Hashtag men are trash. Now, why I'm saying this is an example is because what this very effectively does, it goes against God's design for men to be the head of the household. That is scripture. If you want to be angry, be angry at Paul who wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Men should be the head of the household. And while that's important, number one, is the more we hear here, men are trash, men are trash, the more men are stepping up to be that, to be the head of the household, to be strong and courageous, to be fierce as we should be. A little bit dirty. I'm okay with that. I would rather take a dirty, stinky guy than a guy that doesn't take his position as a man. Let's be honest. But we hear these things. We see the movies and we... We get so influenced by these worldviews, and then we hear the kingdom is upside down. Now, now, we hear that, and I'm sure you've said that a million times, you know, the kingdom of God is upside down. But it was so upside down from the very beginning, beginning that it was always the younger who was served by the older. I know I'm not allowed to swear in church, but this is what we're seeing. The younger brothers get the positions of authority while the older have to serve them. What's happening? That's not, that wasn't culturally appropriate. In fact, we know that in Jewish tradition, the older brothers, let's say there's two kids, the older brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance because he has to have double the amount of the rest. That's how much they revered the older. And yet, in the Bible, we see 30-year-olds becoming kings. King David, 30 years old when he became king. Ruling not, he's just little, his little family ruling the nation of Israel under God's command. This is an upside down kingdom. And here Jesus is going into these kids and this is a, a big thing because... As now, there was a socially graded society. So there were those who we deem great, fantastic, and we listen to everything they have to say, which boggles my mind. I've, I've spoken about this a ton. But someone who wrote a good song all of a sudden have the greatest perspective on, you know, life and living and politics. Like, I get you can, can sing well, TT, you know. Um, I'm not saying any names. I get you're, you wrote a good song and people like it. It doesn't mean your perspective matters. And we fall for it. We fall for it. You know, I honor Sia Khaleesi as, as uh, the Springboks captain, and I think what they did is amazing. But I'm not going to listen to his worldview. It might be fantastic. He loves Jesus very much, but just because he has position doesn't mean he has something to say. We should be more careful who we allow to shape our worldviews. We should be more careful with what content we consume. Whether it's in a conversation with someone or listening to someone on YouTube or whatever the case may be, can you actually trust what's being imparted to you? We should be careful with this. Jesus goes on and Jesus starts talking about the little children and we see that, that children represent those who are most important to God. And in keeping his commands, it's not enough. He demands all we have. He spoke here to the rich man. He again goes into the fact that wealth is often the enemy of salvation. And then he says that those who give up in this life will not be losers in the end. 
This is a tough one. And, and we might often be tempted to say that, you know, this upside down kingdom. But what that means is it means that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be committed to a value revolution that not only demands our total commitment to God's cause, but also challenges our most basic assumptions about how society should operate. Our most basic assumptions about how society should op- operate. And then he says, you must become like little children. Now, we have a very romantic idea of children these days. We, we really do. I'm not saying it's easy. Parents, relax. But in our modern society, we've got this romantic idea of they're innocent and creative and full of life. You know, that's how we view kids. You know, it's, it's the next generation. You know, it's the leaders of tomorrow, which is all 100% true. But it wasn't in the Greco-Roman world. That wasn't the fact. In fact, kids were nothing, often discarded, thrown away if not wanted, just there you go. And if not that, they they were brought up to be prostitutes or gladiators for those who weren't wanted. You know, the kids would be used to be cannon fodder for entertainment. And that would still be better because some children were disfigured by their parents to get more money as beggars. And the parents would cut them and, and beat them so that they will have disfigurements, break limbs, so that when they beg, they might make more money out of kids. As you can hear, they definitely weren't deemed the highest of society. And Jesus makes this incredible. Why do you think the disciples rebuke people bringing babies? Because children were nothing in the society. For us, it doesn't make sense. We would first let the babies, because we've heard this scripture, you know, let the kids come to Jesus. You know, we've heard that a million times. So we know that's what we should do. And he says, let them come. Let the lowest of the low come. Let those without rights or privileges come. Let them come. And he challenges the societal hierarchical idea. He challenges, and it is a difficult challenge because, man, everyone who had position had to step aside to allow those who they thought didn't in. This is a a tough question, and... I feel like it's still so important to us because Jesus then goes on to say that you must become like little children. Now, now what does that mean? Um, Which is a very important thing. Um, Firstly, because they had no rights, we must become as those who have no rights. Amen. The lawyers are going, what are you talking about? I'm talking rights in the kingdom, sitting in front. Although, we've got two justified people in the church. You know that, oh, I've, I've, I've arrived. Don't do that. Let go of your rights. Become like children. Become like children in the ancient world who would willingly give up their rights. And the second thing is children are not born, as I've experienced myself, with an intact moral value system. They're taught that. All right? Praise Jesus. They're taught that. And in the same way, like children, we need to be taught the moral value system of the kingdom of God. Because it doesn't look the same as this world. We must once again become like those who submit under the word of God. As the age-old saying goes, if the word says it, that settles it. And this is important because the world right now is going against the word of God at any opportunity they can. They're getting creative. I mean, 
I feel like we took a left turn somewhere and all of a sudden I find myself in a place where they say men can get pregnant. And I'm like, no, they can't. I want to hear some amens on that, church. I never demand that, but today I'm demanding that. Why? Because our worldviews are being challenged. The Word is being challenged. So what many churches are doing, they're saying, oh, but the Bible needs to be updated to fit our modern society. So they're saying, I'm going to become the creator and this must become the creation. No, no, no. We need to become like children. See, Jesus was challenging it. And the beauty is, he said, if you don't like it, that's fine, but you're going to go to hell. Oh, sorry, that was a bit harsh. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. You can have your own worldview, that's fine, you just can't have the kingdom then. That th these are our options as Christians. We either follow Jesus or we don't. That is the options as disciples. We've got one of two, one of two great opportunities. Eternity in glory or eternal damnation. That, that's, that's it. There, there's no sugarcoating that. There's no sugarcoating that. Let's move on. I'm going to end with a blind beggar and end this. I, I want to show you five things, five things quickly. It's going to be two minutes, three minutes. Five things that we can learn from, the, from this blind beggar because he was like the persistent woman that we just read about earlier and he was just standing in his faith and he was in the business of begging. So, so he knew how to scream and be obnoxious. Um, let's be honest. The more he screamed, the more... Let's, we still get that. The car guard who's the loudest... Bless them, guys. Bless them. Bartimaeus, he, he's screaming out um, some things, five quick things we can learn about the faith, from, of faith about, from Bartimaeus. Let's, let's do it like that. Number one, our faith should be in Jesus the Messiah. He asked what's going on. They said, no, Jesus of Nazareth is coming, but you'll notice he doesn't call, them, call him Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him son of David, the messianic title from the Old Testament. He knew who this man was. This was no Jesus of Nazareth, not a chance. This was the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, why this is important is because Bartimaeus had faith in the biblical Jesus, not the conceptual Jesus. All right? He had faith in the biblical Jesus, not the conceptual Jesus. The conceptual Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter's son. The biblical Jesus was the Messiah, the son of man, the son of David, who came to take away the sins of the world. There is a big difference here. And that's the first thing. We must have faith not in our concepts of Jesus, but rather in the Jesus of Scripture. Many cults have made Jesus many things that He is not. Many of us have made Jesus many things that He is not. And through this series, I'm sure, as I have been challenged once again by who this Jesus really was. Because in church you might hear one thing and then hear Jesus, people are coming to him, heal us. He's like, no, I'm done. I'm leaving now. And you're thinking, hey, that's not the Jesus that I've conceptualized in my mind. Don't worship the Jesus that fits your worldview. Worship the Jesus of Scripture. Worship the Jesus of Scripture. So that's the first thing. He knew who Jesus was. He worshiped. Jesus, the Messiah, Son of David. Second thing we learn from him is that our faith should appeal to God, not on the basis of merit, but of mercy. Now you'll notice this came up a few times in this chapter. Not merit, but mercy. So Bartimaeus was, was screaming out, and he's a blind beggar, and he's screaming, and he's screaming. And he himself had, had no leg to stand on here. 
He didn't use anything else except, Lord, have mercy on me. Now you notice back, tax collector, same thing. Lord, have mercy on me. There's, there's a, quite a theme of humility before God in this chapter. A humility I believe we should emulate. Now Luke wants to kind of communicate here to us that we are all blind beggars before God. This is a better perspective of who we are, blind beggars before God. And we cry out in our faith, not because of our merit, but because of His mercy. Because your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. God is not impressed by your righteousness. Although, humility makes an impression on Him. The third thing we can learn is that faith should be personal. It shouldn't be generic. He was crying out saying, Lord, have mercy on me. He wasn't saying, hey, I am of Israel, of the nation of Abraham, son of this, son of that. You know, I have earned this. I have served you for so long. I've been going to church for at least five weeks in a row this year. I mean, this is a pretty good thing I've got going right here. I deserve this thing I'm praying for. Not a chance. He said, God... Have mercy on me, I'm personal, me, I, I just need you. Is your faith personal? Is your faith personal? The fourth thing we learn from this is that our faith should be persistent and overcome all hindrances. Now, there's two things happening here. Number one, begging was his main source of income. But the seeing beggar is not as, <laughs> as striking as the blind beggar. All right. So even asking, Lord, I want to see, puts his whole world into a bit of a flat spin because then he's got no assurance of an income. But he had faith in God's provision. And the second thing was, the second hindrance that he had to overcome is people told him to keep quiet and he just shouted louder. He's like, not a chance. Am I going to keep quiet? Not a chance. This is, this is it. Jesus the son of David, he knew who he was. He said, he's coming and I'm not missing this opportunity. And he shouted and his faith, Jesus said, here, your faith has healed you. But I wonder how often we actually shout when we have these opportunities with Jesus. When we have these opportunities with when Jesus walks by in our lives. And that doesn't mean he literally walks by, but maybe that is a friend who speaks to you and says, man, I've been noticing that this is a problem or, or I've been seeing this. How's it going? That is a moment when Jesus is walking by. Are you going to be the one that says, no, I don't, I don't, it's fine, you know, don't worry about it. Or are you going to be the one that cries out and says, Lord, have mercy on me. What do we do in that moment? Because our faith should overcome all hindrances, whether it is unsurety about our future or even the hindrances we're facing as in our struggles. And the fifth thing, which is very important, very important, your faith must change you. You will notice, it says, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And then it says these incredible words, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. In that moment of faith, his life changed and he became a follower of Christ. Your faith should change you. And if you're not changed, it means you need to take a good hard look at your faith. Because maybe you're not worshiping the Christ of Scriptures. Because the Christ of Scriptures does not share a throne. The Christ of Scriptures 
wants to be not just your Savior, but your Lord. And we should be changed when we put our faith in Him. Listen, I'm not saying we don't make mistakes. And we've been over that in this incredible book as well, where there's grace for those who make mistakes and repent. There's grace. God is a God of mercy. What there's no grace for is people who are unrepentant. There's no mercy for unrepentance. None. And that's why the fifth and very important thing is that our faith should change us in how we follow Christ. This incredible chapter has, um, has so much in it once again. And after it, uh, there's a couple of things that stood out. But one thing that for me just frames this is that big question. What kind of faith will Jesus find when he comes back? Will he find the Bartimaeus who's screaming and shouting? Will he find those who persistently pray and without ceasing, even when they don't get what they're praying for, as all the ones dubbed as heroes in the book of Hebrews? Or will they find people who claim they follow Jesus, but their lives are not in, in, in suit with that? Will he find those who prayed once and then said, no, you know, I didn't get what I wanted, so there is no God. <laughs> I want to pray for us, Lord. We want to be the kind of people that is persistent in our faith. Jesus, my, my desire is that when you come back, that you will find us shouting, Lord, have mercy on me. And Lord, today we, we definitely knocked on some, some challenging doors, but, but we recognize that this is your truth. So first, we want to repent of, of spiritual pride. We're sorry, God, that we, we so often fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves more highly as we ought. Lord, we do not want to be resisted by you. We want to find grace in you. So forgive us our spiritual pride, Lord. God, we want to be like, like the woman that was so persistent in her faith and her prayers. We want to be like that. We want to be like the tax collector who would beat his chest and, and say, Lord, have mercy. We want to be like the children who, who's shaped by your standards and your kingdom, Lord. We want to be like the blind beggar who had faith even in the face of adversity. Lord, I thank you that through reading your word and through teaching your word and through hearing your word that we might become more and more like those you are seeking, the people of faith. So help us, Holy Spirit. Empower us for this journey that we're on so that we might bring you glory and honor and that you might find faith when you return. In Jesus' name. Amen.